Hello, I'm Julian Bagini and welcome to the second in a series of microphilosophy podcasts looking at how different philosophical traditions around the world shape the way we think. They've been made in conjunction with the Berglund Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre, the goal of which is to develop fresh ideas through comparative and interdisciplinary work and relate these insights to the pressing issues of our day. This is a second of three podcasts in conversation with participants in one of the centre's workshops in Stanford, California. This one about different conceptions of self. Today, we're going to look at the idea of the self as a relational being, an idea which will hopefully become much clearer very soon. Joining me were Daniel Bell, director of the Bragrun Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre and author of the recent The China Model, Roger Ames, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Hawaii and editor of the journal Philosophy East and West, and Jin Lee, Professor of Education and Human Development at Brown University and author of Cultural Foundations of Learning, East and West. I began by asking Roger Ames how he would introduce the idea of relationality. Well, I would begin by asking them to think ecologically. Ecology really is an argument that everything is interdependent, And so that metaphor argues against the concept of individuality. Like our default way of thinking is that somehow or other we're discrete and we're independent, we're inside and the world is outside. I don't think that that is a common sense within the Chinese way of seeing the world. A person is defined in terms of the relationships, the roles, the relationships that constitute them, that are their narrative as human beings. And you, you'd, you'd contrast that with a kind of assumption of individualism that we find in most parts of the modern West. Exactly. And could, could you give an example, perhaps, of where you might see in practice how that different outlook sure. affects the way people... If, if you take the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, for example, the first 20 articles are all about individual entitlements, what is owed to me, what I own, all of my protections. The last seven articles are all about everybody having a job, everybody having a house, everybody having a hospital, security in the community, and so on, that those two don't really fit together. Like, if you get to keep everything that's yours, then then you don't have responsibility for, for somebody else's hospital stay. And so there's that kind of a contradiction. When we look at the way in which human rights have developed in China, they're very much focused on the last seven items of the Universal Declaration, and much less focused on individual individual rights. So, I mean, Daniel Bell, I mean, this idea of relationality presumably is important for this value of harmony, which you think is important. Harmony is a kind of normative ideal, so I think we need to distinguish between relationality as a kind of descriptive claim and as a normative claim. Mm. As a descriptive claim, of, of course, we're bound up with our social relations, with our communities, and there's, in, in some deep way, it's impossible to think ourselves separate from those. But as a normative claim, the issue is that the good life lies in having high-quality social relations with our families, with our citizens, with people from other countries, and with nature. And the idea of harmony is that we should strive to establish harmonious relations with all those different forms of, we can call them, communities. And what does that mean? It means, at minimum, that there should be peaceful order. But the Confucian idea of harmony strongly emphasizes respect, maybe even celebration of diversity. So it means with family members, we should have this foundation of social order, but we should also respect and even celebrate diversity. Same thing with relations with citizens and with people from other countries and with nature. And that has a political implication, does it? Well, it means that when it comes to, for example, in China, the selection and promotion of government officials, that 
there should be this criterion. Do they do a good job of promoting and nourishing harmonious relations? I think that's very important. In, in a kind of democracy, it means that citizens might want to choose uh, leaders that, have, that promise to nourish harmonious social relations. China is almost one quarter of the world's population. Uh, it's not a country like France or Canada. It's a, it's a continent like Africa or Europe. And the fact that that massive diversity has persisted for 2,000 years, doing what Europe is trying to do now with the European Union. I mean, the European Union happened in uh, China uh, 2,500 years ago. <laughs> now, Jun Lee, you've actually looked at, I mean, you're a psychologist, and you've looked at child development in particular. Um, do we see kind of evidence for this importance on what we're calling here relationality in the way in which children are brought up compared to how they're brought up by, by Western parents? Yes, very much. My own research doesn't directly address that, but there are plenty of research that answers that question. For example, when a Chinese mother talks to her child about emotions, feelings, how did you feel when you went to the zoo? And the mother is unlikely to ask the child to reflect on his or her own feelings, but rather how did the animal make the other children feel? Think about your brother. How would he feel? So in other words, very early on, East Asian, this is not just Chinese, but Japanese, Korean, and you know, Taiwanese, and Hong Kong, and Singapore, as well as Vietnamese uh, families show the same pattern. That is, their other-oriented emotions, thoughts. And whenever the child is asked to re- respond or reflect on his or her own, there's frequently, just spontaneously, accompaniment of others. So how does this make grandma feel? And the other day, for example, if we ask the mother-child to recall an incident where the child didn't really show very good learning behavior or attitude, and I say, okay, daddy comes back, would he be disappointed? Mm-hmm. So they're evoking other people. In other words, they're trying to instill the sense of responsibility, not just for yourself, whatever you do, and you influence, the impact other people, positively or negatively. Bear other people in mind when you do things. I think that speaks directly to Roger and Daniel's description at the, at the higher level. One thing worth saying, though, is surely that this is a matter of degree, because I think when people hear about this, they sometimes get the idea that perhaps, you know, there's this completely different way of being in the world in, in East Asian countries. It's completely different in the West. I mean, some aspects of what you're saying, they are there in a Western yes, upbringing, but absolutely. it's a matter of emphasis, isn't it? Absolutely. We never find 100% Chinese, 0% mm. of European Americans or British or uh, Germans. Yes, it's a matter of degree. But the matter of degree is consistently found no matter how often you draw a sample and where you draw in East Asia and in the West, you tend to find more or less the same pattern. So there's this almost like always like 40% you know, a tendency to toward uh, or 60% more toward the Asian way in Asia versus European-American, the Western way, toward the Western way. I mean, Roger, in this sort of culture where the relationality is so important, I mean, you said something about how this makes your sense of who you are, you used the phrase, irreducibly transactional. And that, in turn, entails the idea... You talk about human becoming rather than human being. Could you explain a bit about what you mean by that? What I mean is that if you begin from the primacy of relationality 
That is to say that we're not individuals, we are related, and then our individuality is an abstraction out of friendship, out of fathers and, and daughters and so on. Then a person is really a narrative, a story of interrelated roles, relationships, and, and, and so on. So it's a process. A person is not a thing. A person is an event, like an event in history, mm-hmm. uh, a current in a stream. Daniel was talking earlier about how the idea of uh, harmony is a, a normative ideal, meaning it concerns how we think things ought to be, as right. well as descriptive. Yeah. I'm wondering to what extent is the fact that, you know, in, in, it seems like all over East Asia we have this value. To what extent is it a, a positive thing, a, a good thing, something to be celebrated and perhaps even protected against encroachments for, of individualism? And to what extent perhaps is it not so, such a good thing? Well, the bad part is manifested in countries like North Korea where the government decides in a very dictatorial manner over what is a harmonious life, I'm using scare quotes, and then spreads it to the rest of the country. But I I do think if we restore this Confucian idea of harmony with respect and if not celebration of diversity, it would help to mitigate such abuses. Because clearly North Korea emphasizes conformity, but the Confucians explicitly distinguish between harmony, which really includes this value of diversity, and conformity or uniformity. Let me give you a concrete example. My family had a friend uh, in China, so they're Muslim. Uncle Uncle Chen, uh, he is a Muslim. So during Cultural Revolution, yeah, you may imagine that's like hell for everybody. Well, not exactly. I mean, yes, pretty much so. But I have to say, there is still harmonious attempt. For example, the Communist Party and government is very aware of the fifty-nine minority groups, right? So Muslim is a huge group there. And they're very respectful. So the harmonious attempt is manifested in the following way. During cultural revision, every family is allotted one pound of pork per week, let's say, okay? Very little. In the family of five, that's very little food, very little protein. Yet by Muslim uncle, they have two pounds for the family of beef. So I think that's an attempt to respect in the scarcity of resources, yet still the, the, the larger you know, social order design is to respect them mm-hmm. and not forcing them to eat pork right. or nothing at all. Mm-hmm. But instead, giving them twice as much as showing the Han minority that we've got to respect this group who live, lives with us, mm-hmm. okay? I don't know any, any other government that has this kind of mixture of population that does that. I think that's a good example of harmonious attempt. And indeed, they feel I, respected. I, th- I think one point that we really ought to make, too, is that most of us who are advocating an inclusion of the Confucian uh, way of thinking mm-hmm. are not people who believe that Confucianism is the answer to everything, mm-hmm. that we're fully aware that there are trade-offs that privacy, a certain quality of freedom, you know, that we associate with individuality, a uniqueness, uh, all of these are high values, and that there is a trade-off. Mm-hmm. And so our advocacy is really that the Confucian tradition is sufficiently different and sufficiently antique, 
sufficiently robust that it really does provide us with alternative ways of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. And so that were we to bring it into the conversation in, in an intelligent way, that it would add to the evolution of a more interesting conception of person. Yeah, I agree with what Roger said, but let me add that why do we want to say more on behalf of Confucianism? Not only perhaps because it faces threats, right? Mm-hmm. One threat is from capitalism, which makes people very individualistic and tends to yeah. reduce the Im- impact of so- social relations, more selfish. But the other is from a kind of very vulgar form of Marxism, which says that everybody's going to become these kind of material beings, sure. and, and that's the more, much, much more important than the quality of social relations. Mm-hmm. Are there ways, though, in which, given that you say there are trade-offs and we have values such as you know, privacy and individualism in the West, can the West really take anything from this, or is it kind of, you have to take the whole package or, or nothing at all? No, I, I think um, that common ground certainly can be found between um, two very importantly different ways of thinking. Uh, Liberalism has done wonderful things in terms of liberating minorities, in terms of gender uh, problems and so on. So I don't think that a second enlightenment erases a first enlightenment. But I think we need a second enlightenment that includes things that have been left out before. I mean, you're a philosopher, Julian. When you think of where we are in the ethics discourse, for example. You know, we had rule-based ethics, Mm -hmm. but then that seemed to be too anemic. And so you have Anscombe, and we come in, and virtue comes in. Mm -hmm. But then following it comes somaticity, Mm -hmm. uh, emotions, um, all of the elements that have been left out Mm -hmm. of the ethics discourse uh, become really important in terms of finding our way forward in a more inclusive, capacious kind of a way. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing is true with the, with the concept of person, that individual, abstract individuals um, and abstract principles are too anemic. Mm-hmm. Can I just say, I, I'm not, I do think that cultural priorities do place constraints on what can be learned. I mean, I do think at the end of the day, the Confucian ethics is much more appealing in a society that has a long history of Confucian ethics. I mean, on some issues, you know, like this idea of political meritocracy, you know, that, that, we, that we should do our best to select and promote leaders that, that have superior abilities. I mean, that is deeply embedded, I think, in a kind of East Asian context, not so embedded in, in Western countries. But even issues like family ethics, you know, I mean, Confucians place very high priority on filial piety, or as Roger translates, family reverence. Well, basically, the issue of how do we think of our relationship once we become adult with our elderly parents. I mean, in the West, it's more a matter of choice. I can care for them, yes or no, it's really up to me. But in, I think in China, you know, South Korea, Japan, I mean, all those studies of the Confucian heritage, it's not a matter of choice. It's yeah. like an obligation is obligation. there. Whether you choose or not, you have to do it. But so. children are in, inducted into the idea of you should serve your parents, love them, and demonstrate your care for them, about them, willingly, happily. Mm-hmm. That's the Confucian way. Right. It's not like the law sure. says you must do it. No, you have to do it. Although they have the law recently, but, it's a big debate there. Right. Okay. Yes, so, I, Julian, I want to add something from my field. Now, since about 20 years ago, my field and the psychology as a whole has sort of, you know, at an aha moment, the social support, it's called social capital, from borrowed from mm-hmm. sociology, is a key concept. What does it mean? It means your relationships, your networks, those matter more in the child uh, eventual outcome, okay, matter more than um, the individual effort. 
So now they're also calling something called、uh, non-cognitive aspects,、uh, predicting educational and health outcomes. Okay. So what are those social relationships? So my field as sociologist is like, aha, we we came to this epiphany. But I said, wait a minute. This has been around,、mm-hmm. elegantly argued, lived through several thousand years. Okay, but still today, I would say you know, on campus like where I am, Brown University, our university prides itself on providing this kind of faculty-student care relationship,、uh, caregiver and feminist view. It's like women's care ethics. Uh, Confucian ethics is nothing but care ethics and more, not just a lot more elaborate. So I would say the West has converged in some disciplines、yeah. to this point. Okay, but we need to sort of connect. So I agree. I actually believe it's possible because we already independent. We the West independently stepped on that idea. I want to ask you a question about child development, child rearing patterns, because you've compared the typical patterns of the East Asian parenting and, and Western ones, and I suppose I'd like to ask you whether you would say that one way is better than the other.、Uh, My field and sociology are both saying that in order to, for people, okay, to thrive, to flourish better,、mm. they need it's a need social support. So right now, the idea of social support is government issued policy. Okay, one way that、like、school you need to support, support, support. But then there's a lot in from Confucian perspective. There's a lack of reciprocity. Children, like I like this translation, family reverence, because that is speaking from members of the family. What you do to put this whole together. If only one person provides and nobody re- responds or reciprocates, the system doesn't work. So children must taught to seek help. And the adult world must be,、um, you know, encouraged to provide support.、Mm-hmm. But the two of them need to understand this is that we're together. So、mm-hmm. Jin is making really an important point, and that is that when you take something like Shao, this、mm-hmm. family reverence,、mm-hmm. it's not top down.、Mm-hmm. It's not that the parents, the parents teach the children not by what they say but what they do,、mm-hmm. revering their parents,、mm-hmm. and the children, you know, the idea of the bounce in your step. Doing something for your mom、mm-hmm. is is really a nice thing, you know. That when you do things for the older generation, it's not that you're being that it's being imposed upon you, but rather that you learn to、uh, relish yes. Uh, yes. that kind of and, contribution. Right, and also if the parents do something wrong, you have an obligation to remonstrate, to criticize. Obligation,、them. yeah. yeah. So and to answer this, right, maybe we do think it's better, right? I mean, to answer Julian's question, it is a better way because my my field independently、uh, right now says we must do this, okay? But the, it's haphazardly and not coherently sort of doing this very haphazardly.、Well. Yeah. Can I just ask a short question about this though? Because I think a lot of people, when they think about you know East Asian parenting or something, the, the thing that comes to mind is this idea of the, the tiger mother, you know, the very high pressure kind of. Parenting is that something which is some kind of recent aberration, or is that in some way a, a abuse of the tradition? How does that fit into to this pattern? I guess the basic idea is that this tiger mom and Lisa stereotype—it's quite individualistic. You、yeah. you want、mm. your kids to achieve very well in this kind of bourgeois world. But it does sound like there's an example of where you know the, the, a combination of different traditions can kind of go wrong. Because it sounds a bit like what you've got is the tradition of the the parent as. In educating that the tradition of the community judging them,、mm-hmm. but allied to a growing sense of the importance of individual achievement and attainment, and that's kind of a bad 
combination. And I think that's another thing that came out in terms of abuses of these things. Did someone not say that the term to harmonize has become a bit of a euphemism in China for... To get yes. harmonized. Yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Of course. I mean, and again, that goes against the, the Confucian way, which is respect for... I, I think the Confucians generally played a role of social critics. I mean, they yeah. owed their allegiance not to the status quo, but yeah. to some sort of larger moral order, which was mm-hmm. used as a standard to criticize. So, so the idea that people could be harmonized by, like, government dictate, i.e., you know, censored, is, is just, no, that's totally inconsistent with the Confucian idea. I would say that's a moving away from Confucian. Yeah. I think perhaps the final point to end on, because it is worth stressing, is we have touched upon it at various points, but I, in a sense we can't stress enough the extent to which harmony actually as an ideal shouldn't be about absolute conformity. Is it? The, 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 the key expression in the Analects is mm-hmm. he means harmony, Atong means a uniformity. Yeah. And so the argument is we need a, a kind of diversity yeah. not that, that respects difference, that defers mm-hmm. to difference rather than uniformity. And yeah. uniformity is an ugly term. And it's not an obscure saying. Basically, every Chinese intellectual knows that saying. Yeah. So, And yeah. it really shapes the way people think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks very much, Jin Lee, Daniel Bell, Roger Ames. It's been very interesting talking to you. Pleasure. Thank you. There will be more global perspectives on the self in the next podcast. To keep up to date, subscribe to the Microphilosophy iTunes feed or follow me on Twitter at Microphilosophy. And do check out the work of the Berggrün Institute's Philosophy and Culture Centre at philosophyandculture.berggrün.org. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>